We'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 11 again, uh, rereading some of this passage, starting with uh, verse 15, but uh, reading to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Okay, let's pray together first. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to just take a moment to uh, remember again just how precious your word is, uh, something that is easy for us to take for granted here in America with freedom of religion and just constant easy exposure to, well, many things, but, but to your word. And uh, so we just want to uh, say that we love your word, we know it's your word, it's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and we need to keep that in mind, we need to live accordingly, and I just pray that this morning as your word is open to us by Pastor Mike, we, that just really sinks in, and, uh, that you bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, 
we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. We have been on a journey through the Gospel of Mark for for some time. I'm not real good with dates and figures, but I think it's been uh, over a year. We're slowly working our way through this book. And what I want to do today with this vacation season upon us, a lot of us have been in and out over the last few weeks, so I want to kind of set the stage for where we are with today's passage. And Mark has given us indicators throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's given us both topographical indicators, moving from this place to that place and across the lake. And he's also given us time indicators or chronology. And the passage we're going to look at today happened on a Tuesday. Let's go back a few days to Sunday, Mark 11, 11. It was the first day of the week. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a never-before-ridden colt fulfilling an ancient prophecy uh, in Zechariah 9.9. And the crowd welcomes Jesus with the words of Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this was Sunday, and this we know for the last 2,000 years we have celebrated this event uh, as Palm Sunday. So this was Mark uh, 11.11 as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And you remember he arrived there And he didn't stay long, and he left, and he went back out of the city into Bethany and Bethage. And so he shows up on Sunday, and then he leaves Sunday evening, and then Monday early is when he curses the fig tree in verses 15 through 18. He doesn't curse the fig tree out of frustration. He's not surprised that there's no fruit or figs on it, but he's attempting to powerfully communicate judgment on the religious leaders, excuse me, on the religious leaders of Israel. And that's what was behind the fig tree, and we looked at that last week. This, that was uh, all on a Monday later, verses 15 and 17, Jesus returned to the temple, and he found the court of the Gentiles full of traders and money changers making a large profit. Jesus drove them out and overturned their benches and tables. This is late on Monday, and this is a a major event in Jesus' ministry. Mark has been showing us throughout his gospel that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and he is headed there to suffer and to die and to be raised. But before that happens, this is one of the major events. He is cleaning house, as it were. He has arrived at his house, and his one act of violence, his one act of physical destruction, or whatever you want to call this, was here. He goes in, and he says, this is not the place to have a Galleria mall. This is not the Roosevelt Galleria, and he cleans house later on Monday. Then Monday evening, Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem. On Tuesday morning, they are coming out. Uh, back toward Jerusalem, and the fig tree prophecy is fulfilled through this miracle of destruction. They see that this tree that was in leaf and was alive, Jesus just spoke these words uh, the day prior, cursing it, and that tree is miraculously killed, symbolizing the religious leaders of Israel and the judgment that's coming on them. Now we come to today, Tuesday, later in the day. Jesus is going to do battle today with 
the gathered religious leaders of Israel back in the temple court. So all that's just kind of setting the stage for today's passage, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. You with me? Tracking with me so far, church? Okay. Are you awake? Okay, here we go. So verses 27 through 33, you've got the setting even if you haven't been here the last few weeks. So verse 27 says, they arrived again in Jerusalem, they being Jesus and the disciples. They're back in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? So notice first off here that we have everybody gathered. We have not just the scribes, not just the elders, but however your translation has it, we have all three categories of leaders. The NIV describes, it as, uh, describes them as the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. This is also referred to as the Sanhedrin or the great Sanhedrin. Everybody has come together. They are upset because they are in charge of the temple and they are in charge of how things are going. And Jesus, the previous day, has just come in and overturned and exposed the corruption and the money laundering and the profiteering and everything that is going on there. And they are upset. And so the great Sanhedrin is assembled and they are ready to do verbal battle and spar with Jesus in front of the people. And they ask him these two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? One commentator writes this. He says, the two questions, two questions the, the Grand Sanhedrin are asking, are not designed to elicit information, however. For the Sanhedrin do not need to be told that Jesus lacks the kind of authority that rabbinic ordination confers. And they would not dream of suggesting that he got authority from God. They designed their questions to embarrass Jesus, to leave him defenseless, to expose him as an imposter. This is what they are doing. They're trying to defeat him and expose him as a fraud. They are trying to win the people away from Jesus and to themselves. This is their aim. We were told this back in the passage that Don just read for us. If you look back at verse 18, it says there, the chief priests and the teachers of law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, or as the ESV had it, to destroy him, for they feared him. So they've already made up their minds after he he came in and cleaned house at the temple. They've already made up their minds, we've got to take this guy out. We've got to destroy him. We've got to kill him. So this is part of their aim in having this debate and this discussion. They are concerned with losing their authority. Now, the reader of Mark's gospel at this point, I often use this phrase, the careful reader of Mark's gospels. I want us to be careful readers of Mark's gospel. The careful reader of Mark's gospel at this point would not be distancing themselves from these Pharisees, from these scribes, from the elders, from the Sanhedrin and saying, well, if I were there, I sure wouldn't have done this. I sure wouldn't be concerned about my authority. I would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. We should not be so confident in our flesh that if we were in, those, in their situation, that we wouldn't be trying to cling to authority as well. And so the issue of what we cling to 
or what the Bible refers to as idolatry is the issue at play here. And the text is revealing to us that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the Bible guys, the guys who have ordination certificates on their walls, they're the ones that technically have the authority to cleanse the temple if it needs to be cleansed. Jesus doesn't have an ordination certificate. He hasn't been to seminary. He hasn't been to rabbi school. And they are hoping to expose this and to put him out. Again, the careful reader of Mark's gospel is seeing that one of the idols of the religious leaders is authority. And so rather than just reading the scriptures and distancing ourselves from it and saying, I'm not like that at all, the careful reader should be, should be examining their own heart and say, to what degree am I excessively attached to authority, to controlling others, to wanting things my way? And when we are in that place, when we are more concerned with our control of others or our authority in the place of God, instead of worshiping him, then that authority becomes our God, and that is called idolatry. Tim Keller uh, writes this. He says, whatever you are living for, whether you are religious or not, is your God. And the God of the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin right here, their God is authority, uh, their own authority. Uh, Paul Tillich writes this. He says, idolatry is the elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. A preliminary concern. We need authority. We need organization. We need somebody to uh, operate this temple system the way that God had been worshipped up until this point. This is about to end as there's about to be destruction and Jesus is about to inaugurate a new covenant. But up until that point, the, the way we worshipped involved the temple and bringing sacrifices. And someone has to organize that. And authority in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But when that authority, something that's preliminary, moves to ultimacy and we're willing to kill Jesus over maintaining our authority, then authority has become an idol. And so again, the careful reader of Mark's gospel is, is thinking, do I have excessive attachment to authority, or if not authority, what do I do? What are my idols? The idols of the religious leaders are being exposed here. So the question I think that we should be asking ourselves as we read this passage is what person, what place, what idea, or what thing displaces Jesus' supremacy in my own heart? We can see what's displacing the supremacy of their right worship of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. It's, it's authority. That's what's displacing them. They're ready to take him out. And we need to think about our own hearts and think about our own lives and our own idols. As I was reading this passage uh, this week, I was thinking about this particular issue, of course, and the Lord brought to my mind um, some, some years ago when I was at our previous congregation we're having a new members meeting and getting to know a new couple to the church and just getting to know them the first time. And they had been Christians a long time, a lot longer than I had. They had been involved in a campus ministry when they were in college and were on staff. And so they, these were like, like kind of, you know, really godly, godly people. Like you meet them and like, oh, and, and so I'm a young pastor and I'm, you know, kind of like, yeah, I'm glad they chose this church. You know, I'm kind of feeling kind of, kind of cool. You know what I mean? And uh, I'll never remember, I'll never forget what they said, why they came to this church. And I, I don't remember their exact words. But they were basically saying, 
we have seen so many pastors and leaders in churches abuse their authority and try to control others. We heard at your church, you had, at this particular time, we had what we call a co-pastorate, and we shared the pulpit, and we didn't have like a lead pastor or senior pastor. And they were basically saying, hey, we chose your church because pastors are so corrupt and are so authoritarian. You have this particular structure, and so that's, that's why we came. I'm like, oh, great. I'm really glad that that's why you, you uh, came here, because I, I'm just trying to say that we have the same tendency to have authority and control that the religious leaders in ancient Israel had. Now, authority may not be the idol that you are doing battle with. We're going to talk about a few others. In fact, we're going to hit three of them today. So if, if authority is, is not yours, we all have our different uh, idols and things that we become excessively attached to in the place of Jesus. You just hang on. If authority isn't yours, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple more. So let's come back to uh, our passage here. We've looked at verses 27 and 28. They've asked Jesus these questions. They're demanding of him. They're not looking for information. They're wanting to win in debate, wanting to win this argument, wanting to get him killed, destroyed, out of the scene. Let's look at Jesus' response beginning in verse 29. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. And the NIV does a great job of of bringing out the way that Jesus said this. He is in control. He is demonstrating authority. He is not going to answer their question. He knows that this is a trap. He knows they're not looking for information. He knows that they know that he doesn't have an ordination certificate, and he isn't technically a a rabbi who's part of their group who's authorized to go in and and, uh, overturn these tables. That's what they're upset about. But Jesus takes control of the situation, and he says in verse 30, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. He puts them on the spot. Verse 31, John, the omniscient narrator, tells us what they're discussing among themselves. Throughout Mark's gospel, we we know that Mark knows things that other people don't know. They, They have this conversation in private, verse 31. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they're having this internal discussion among themselves, and they think of the two options. Uh, is 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 John's baptism from heaven, meaning is it from God? Heaven, Jesus is using the language of the Sanhedrin. They would often avoid using God's name so as not to take his name in vain, and so they would substitute a word like heaven for God. And so, so there's the, the right answer, John the Baptist was sent by God. Jesus described him as, as, as the greatest man born to women, born to a woman, the greatest, I mean, incredible things. He was a prophet, and the people flocked to him and, and were repenting and being baptized for the remission of their sins. The one thing we can say about John the Baptist is that he was sent from God and that he was godly. But they say, if we say from heaven, he will ask then, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't they believe him? They didn't believe him because John was also threatening their authority and their power. The people were flocking to him, and he was preparing the way John was for the Messiah. And the religious leaders want to maintain their authority, and so they're not going to answer the question correctly because it would expose 
that they didn't follow John, that they weren't baptized, that they weren't preparing themselves for this Messiah. They didn't recognize him as the prophet. So they can't say that. So should we lie then? Verse 32, should we say he's from men? Well, we can't answer that either because the people are for him and we need the people to be for us. So we can't tell the truth. We can't lie. And so the religious leaders of Israel who have the seminary degrees, who have the ordination certificates, they say, we don't know. We don't know. The Bible guys, the guys who have all the knowledge, they don't know. They are trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus has actually trapped them. They are trying to shame Jesus, but shame has come upon them, revealing their idols. So the first idol we've mentioned that they have is power. But notice there's a second idol in their contemplation of the lying answer. We should we say that John the Baptist and his baptism is from men? Uh, they don't want to go that route because they fear the people. So idol number one is power. Idol number two are, are the people. They are more concerned about having followers. They are more concerned about getting likes uh, and followers on their Instagram account than they are concerned about doing what is right before the Lord. So, their hope, the religious leaders, was that by his answer, Jesus would be brought into disrepute with the people and thereby clear the way for their arresting him, but instead, they are brought into disrepute. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple stands. So, idol number one is power. Idol number two is people. And again, the careful reader of Mark's gospel here will be thinking about To what degree do I care about what people think about me or follow me or look to me more than I care about obeying Jesus and being faithful to his word and to his truth? So we have these two idols, power and people, um, coming uh, right off the uh, bat here involved in this argument. This is the question I'm suggesting that we should be asking ourselves. In John 4.1, we're told about this idea of, of people. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John way back in chapter 4. They were concerned about how many followers John had. Now they're concerned about how many followers Jesus has, and their idols are being revealed to us. Now, the fundamental difference between the leaders in Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, the fundamental difference between them and us is not that they have these idols and we don't. All of us have idols. They do and we do as well. You and I are excessively attached to things in the place of Jesus from time to time, from day to day, from hour to hour. And a good way to to figure out, one of the ways to figure out what your idols are, if they're not authority, if they're not people wanting them to follow you or to affirm you or to praise you, is to uh, think about what do you freak out over? What do you freak out over? So I could share with you many, many testimonies of what I freak out over, right? I mean, we could spend, if, if we, should we have sharing time and invite you up this morning and have you share, what we'd really need is your spouse or your children to share about you, what you freak out over about. That's a laugh of familiarity there, because we often need others to help us to see what our idols are, what we are excessively attached to. But I'll choose to share one with you. I've already shared here a couple years ago. 
Um, one of my idols, painful but true and revealed to me, is, is a, a excessive attachment to reputation or what others think about you. And this comes out when I might freak out. And I've shared this story with, with some of you. Some of you are newer and haven't heard this story. But a couple years ago, two, three years ago, uh, Sunday came, worshipped here, Cornerstone, great morning. We're all loaded up, and our family goes to the lake uh, right after the service. At that point, we, uh, that time, we had our small group in the evening. So we got time to be out on the lake and then get back to our small group. And so we're out on the lake up at, um, uh, what lake were we at? Rollins. We're up at Rollins Lake. Time to come back uh, at our small group. So we're loading up and getting all the gear ready. And guess what? We stayed on the lake a little bit too long. And so I start to freak out. And I'm not real happy. I want to be on time. I want to get to a small group on time. The pastor should be at a small group on time, especially if he's leading it and so on and so on. So, so I'm, uh, I'm, how would you describe me, Mark? Cranky? How would you describe me? Go ahead. Mildly irritated. What a good son. Mildly irritated. <laughs> so I'm mildly irritated. And one of the ways that my mild irritation is coming out is I'm driving a little fast down I-80. Now, we know what happens on I-80 beneath Rollins Lake. Those of you that drive that route regularly, there's some men in black and white cars that hang out in that section. And I know that. I drive through there all the time. But I am irritated. I am freaking out. And I'm going to be late. And I don't want to be late. And the speed limit with the trailer is 55 miles per hour. And so all of a sudden, there's a little motorcycle behind my car with those little lights going on. I get pulled over there and whole family's packed in our little Toyota Tacoma to have a little audience as I get a, a lecture about speeding with the trailer, with these little wheels on the trailer, and, and I, I needed all that. I'm, I'm sharing this with you to say we need to look at the things that we freak out over. If we're a careful reader of Mark's gospel, if we're not just reading the Bible, but we're allowing the Bible to read us, that we will see that we, like those religious leaders, are idolaters. Now here, the fundamental difference between us and them is that we repent of our idols. That we repent. This is why Jesus has chosen, one of the reasons he's chosen John the Baptist as the issue to, to bring out here, is he from men or is he from God? Because the religious leaders are refusing to repent of their sins. They won't acknowledge them even. And so the difference between the follower of Christ today or the follower of Christ in the first century, and the religious leaders of Israel in this passage is not that they're idolaters and we're not, but that we repent of our idolaters. We confess our sins. We recognize what our idols are, and we apply the gospel to our lives. And by God's grace, we grow. And those times and season, seasons of freaking out become less and less. And as we grow in Christ, we, we gain wisdom and we gain self-control. And we have the maturity. I would hope I would have the maturity a few years later to say, hey, I was just late coming off the lake and, I, and I'm here late. And I'm not a perfect man and I don't get to all events on time. That would be a godly way to respond. But an idolatrous way to respond is to, to freak out. And so this is... What we should see in this passage, we see two very dominant idols, authority and people, but there are a million different idols, 
And as believers, our idols are usually good things. So let's just finish up this text. We've pretty much finished it. We're going to look at one more idol in a moment. So the, the Sanhedrin, as they have this debate, the, the smartest people who've memorized more scripture, who have the ordination certificates on the wall, they say to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus is doing what he did by the authority of God the Father who sent him. John the Baptist is doing, has been doing what he is doing by the authority of God the Father who sent them. Everybody who's witnessing this verbal debate recognizes that Jesus has been sent by God. He has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. He has calmed the seas. He has fed the thousands. People are coming from everywhere to hear his teaching. And the religious leaders are concerned that they're going to lose control of the merchandise at the temple. So again, the fundamental difference between us and them, if the grace of God is operating in our lives, is repentance, repentance. Martin Luther said the whole life of the believer is a life of repentance. Repentance is a beautiful thing, the gospel being applied in our lives and repenting. So, two idols, we've hit two of three. Idol one, power. Idol two is people. Idol number three I want to hit today, I'm calling a preferable future. This is something I believe that we are excessively attached to in the place of Jesus, you and I are, and that is a preferable future. Let me explain what I mean. I'm going to kind of leave this text a little bit, but I feel like I'm justified in jumping to another text because it is John the Baptist and Jesus bringing him up is why I'm hitting this third idol, a preferable future in John the Baptist's life. So let's begin with a verse that we have um, often on our tables, um, on our refrigerators. It is a great verse. It is a verse that we should memorize. How many of you, this is a familiar verse for you, Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me just read it for those of you that can't maybe see this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So I'm, I'm kind of qualifying what I'm about to say here. I am all for this verse, and I am for memorizing this verse. And my desire for my life and your life is that you do not have harm and that you have blessing and you have prosperity. The Hebrew word there, plans to prosper, the word that the NIV translates prosper there is the word shalom. My prayer is that you would have wholeness and shalom in your life. But I want to suggest that even this theology, even this verse is taken out of balance in our own lives. And we expect God to give us a preferable future. And that is not always the case. Those of you that know the story of John the Baptist know where I'm going. It was not the case for him. And so Jeremiah 29, 11 makes it on our coffee mugs and it's on our walls and it's on our refrigerators and so on. But Jeremiah 29, 10 doesn't. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. 70 years they were in exile. They were disciplined and put out. They were chastised. Life was not good. And some of them died outside the land. And so Jeremiah 29, 11 is about after 70 years of struggle and hardship and being put out, 
that there is a future coming and you're going to come back, this nation that has been exiled from the land because of their sin and their disobedience. And so there would have been some that were born and some that died and and didn't really experience these plans to prosper and to give you a hope and a future and a land back. You can read the rest of this chapter. So as we're moving toward this third idol and the, the last idol in the sermon of a preferable future, what I'm saying is we have overplayed Jeremiah 29.11. We have uh, cliche theology, and again, it's not a false theology. It's an issue of balance. Uh, we, we've heard, maybe you've heard it from a pulpit. Maybe you haven't heard it from a pulpit. Um, let me just say the first part. When, when God closes a door, he often, often, often opens a window, and he does do that. Um, you probably know uh, of a young man who is pursuing a woman, wanting to marry her, in love with her, you know, all whooped and just, just going crazy, just loves her, and then she breaks up with him, and then he's just like a pool and a puddle, and he's just miserable, and he's depressed, and he's sad, and then a year or two later comes and he meets someone else, and he's very thankful that that door was closed, and he's met the woman of his life. God does that, Right? But he doesn't always do that. He doesn't always do that. Sometimes the door closes and you are on the other side of the door and you're John the Baptist and there's no window open and you're in jail. And the window doesn't open. The door finally opens and what happened to him? He was decapitated. His head is cut off and brought to a dinner party. It wasn't exactly he closed the door and he opened a window for John the Baptist. If we look at Jeremiah 29, if you look at this whole section, you will see there is blessing, but there is also hardship and suffering, and these are not necessarily connected at all to godliness. Dare I say, John the Baptist was godlier than any one of us in here this morning. And what was God's will for him? It wasn't to open a window for him to experience blessing and to smell the roses and to get married and move to the foothills and have a wife and two kids and a dog and a goat. That's not what he had for John the Baptist. So, I'm saying that you and I are often attached to this idea of a preferable future that God has for us, that he may have for us, and I hope he has it for you, and I hope he has it for me. But as a pastor, I have watched a lot of people suffer. And a lot of people, not in the position that John the Baptist is in, but a lot of people that the window doesn't really get opened, and they don't really hear the, hear, smell the flowers and hear the music playing. Life, life is hard. And so I'm trying to give those of you that need to hear that hope this morning. So let's look a little bit more at John the Baptist, and we're going to finish up here in in just a moment. Matthew 11, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're familiar with John the Baptist, this is an astonishing thing he asks. He is the final prophet of the Old Testament. He is so godly because he, more than anyone else, is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. He has the inside track. He is coming. I am pointing to him. That's all John was about. 
But what happens when he's in prison? Oh, God's going to open a window and make my life beautiful. No, he is in misery. He's in prison. And he gets to the point where he's wondering, is Jesus, this Jesus, is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Wasn't he supposed to come and set the captives free? I'm not free. I'm suffering. Life is hard. Again, I'm not wishing prison cells or suffering or hardship on you or on me. But some of God's greatest servants, that's what comes their way. And it is a lie to preach exclusively when God closes the door, he's going to open a window. Sometimes the door stays shut and your head gets cut off. So John has a lot to say to us. Before he was suffering, John is saying he must increase. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. God, make that the prayer of our hearts. That Mike would decrease, that Christ would increase, whether he gives me blessing and days at the lake, or whether he gives me hardship and illness and suffering, just talking with some of you this morning, lots of suffering out there. Whatever, by God's providence, his mysterious providence comes our way, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. Now, the good news is that the word come back, word come back, the, the word comes back to John. He's in prison suffering. He's, he's discouraged to the point where he's wondering now if he, his whole reason was to point to the Messiah, and now he's asking, is, is he indeed the Messiah? And the word comes back to John the Baptist. Yeah, Jesus is raising the dead. He's healing the sick. You know, John, I think, just like many in his day, was expecting the kingdom to be ushered in now and all the jail cells to flow open and Jesus to begin to reign in Jerusalem and all of sin to be put away and Satan to be thrown into the abyss. And and that wasn't to happen right then. So John gets that encouraging word, yes, yes, yes. And so again... Matthew 14, the end of John's story. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. The window never opened. But the hope here, this is really important for those of you that are suffering, for those of you that life hasn't turned out exactly how I thought it was going to, that Christ is sufficient for John the Baptist in prison, that Christ is sufficient no matter what comes your way in life, and I hope it is the blessing, I hope it is the window side of things, But if the windows are gone and the door is closed and life is hard, Christ is sufficient to see John through beheading. Close with a couple comments from Jared Wilson. He writes this. 
He says, I have a problem with all the chase your dreams cheerleading from Christian leaders. It's not because I begrudge people who want to achieve their dreams, but because I think we don't readily see how easy it is to conflate our dream chasing with God's will in Christ. I got to think John the Baptist had some dreams. I got to think he did not think his life was going to go the way that it went. But God's will for John the Baptist was different, and Christ was sufficient to see him through that, and he is sufficient to see you through whatever you might be going through. Again, Jared Wilson writes this. He says, you know it's possible that God's plan for us is littleness. His plan for us may be personal failure. By that I mean, I think what he means is is John the Baptist's life was a personal failure in the sense that wasn't his plan to go to prison and be beheaded. I think that's what he means. He says his plan for us may be personal failure. It's possible that when another door closes, it's not because he plans to open the window, but because he plans to have the building fall down on you. The question we must ask ourselves is this. Will Christ be enough? And the answer is yes. Christ is enough. He will see us through blessing. He will see us through prison. If the Lord would ever have one of us there. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. Lord, it's so easy when we read a passage like this to distance ourselves from these religious leaders and to be prideful. So we ask that you would free us from that kind of thinking. We pray, Lord, that we would see the difference between us and them is not that they were sinners and we weren't, but that we turned to Christ, that we repented, that we applied the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would experience blessing in our lives. But more important than receiving material blessing and good food and good homes and beautiful things like that that I hope that we have, More important than that is that we love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I want to pray now, especially for those who are struggling. Praying for those who, one of you has a doctor appointment soon with a neurologist and may be hearing very hard things. Lord, that Christ will be sufficient for you in that scenario or whatever your scenario is. Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would help us to love you more than anything else in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.